Welcome to the Queen's Return on Innovation podcast. This podcast is about sharing the success stories and the lessons learned from experts and entrepreneurs from Queen's in Eastern Ontario. In this episode, we're pleased to have Ms. Anne Vivian Scott, President and CEO of Kinarm. Anne has spent the majority of her career occupied by the challenging task of commercializing university-based research and discoveries into meaningful products and services. She has a chemical engineering degree from Waterloo and an MBA from Concordia. Kinarm, based in Kingston, Ontario, was developed out of a shared inspiration to shed light on the field of sensory motor neuroscience. The technology used by Kinarm arises from the laboratory of Dr. Stephen Scott, a neuroscience researcher at Queen's University. Kinarm produces research equipment used by researchers to assess patients impacted with brain injuries due to stroke, traumatic brain injury, and neurological diseases, amongst other conditions. So, Anne, thank you for joining us. Happy in, to be here. <laughs> in, in some of the pre-notes, you sent me a document that talked about Kinarm, the technology that Kinarm, the company, is developing. Is that yes. 20 years? But Kinarm's 15 years old. Can you give us a snapshot of the journey Kinarm's been on from what was the problem you solved to some examples of the trials and tribulations of getting a technology company going. Kinarm is a, what I would call a high-tech company. It's yes. not a software app that you can sort of launch and have in the cloud. It's heavy-duty hardware, software. Lots of lots barriers of those kind of barriers to entry. Yeah. yeah, so tell our listeners what, what Kinarm's all about. This is a long story, a long journey, as you might guess. So I'll try to keep it concise, you know, focus more on sort of how we did it rather than sort of the mechanics of the product per se. Um, one of the sort of interesting aspects is that Kinarm as a product really came out of our, our co-founder's needs, his own personal needs. You know, he's a neuroscientist wanting to do research on the brain and frustrated by sort of current approaches back at that time. This is back in the late, uh, late 90s and realized that he really needed a new platform, a new way to do his research. Kind of key takeaway in terms of how it came to be was that he created it for his own need, his own personal need, his own research. And that's why, you know, when we think about other university research around, you know, that's honestly the best place to start is that it comes in the researcher's own need to to advance their science. The, his science was advanced by the tool, Kinarm. The science wasn't Kinarm per se, which is kind of a subtle, interesting difference. We really were a tool or an instrument that allowed him to, to move his science along. And so I know at the time, because I was working there at Partech, there was a lot of humming and hawing about, ah, I don't know, you know, market potential, not so much, right? You know, but hey, young, smart researcher, let's take a chance. Speeding up sort of the next sort of five years, you know, Steve's own research grew and sort of his publications came and and his colleagues started looking at him and, and using Kinarm and said, hey, that's a kind of a cool instrument. Any chance I could get my hand on one of those? So early days was a lot about virtual operations. You know, we were... Um, you know, Steve was a ha was wasn't you know his full time job was a neuroscientist. He you know pulled on the strength of the center to provide that technical skill to build it. Partech, you know, which at the time was me, was essentially assigned to do, do that sort of back office operation side. Yes. And then along came Ian Brown, and and it was, this is a kind of an interesting story in itself because Ian was a really smart guy. He'd done his PhD at Queens in physiology, had gone to Caltech to do his postdoc, like, and then was a, had a faculty position at University of South Southern California you know, was having that sort of early reflection in life of, gosh, I've done everything to set myself up as an academic, but 
I'm kind of really enjoying working with the gear, the tools, the equipment yes. more than I am when actually thinking abroad, broadly about the research and, oh my gosh, this granting stuff is really painful. Okay. So he gave me a phone call one day. We'd been friends back when the, they were, he and Steve were both at graduate school and uh, said, hey, anything's going on in Kingston. I said, well, funny you should say that because Steve's working on this project and he's just received this money from the provincial government. Ian took a big leap and decided to leave his position at USC and he came back to Queens. Essentially, he'd be hired by Queens to fulfill this employee line, this RFT line that yes. Steve was able to squeak out of this commercialization grant. So Ian kind of came back into Queens and re-engineered everything. He fixed it all, made the, the technology much more robust. And, you know, over the next several years, we literally were able to sort of share his salary between Queens through the Zorro DCF grant and then through the company. And so, you know, again, this sort of virtual operations, as I like to call it, you know, half body here, half body there, research contract always back to Queens in order to make the kin arms um, because we again were tapping into the, the, the resources, the resources the there yeah. so like Luke Harris who is our awesome machinist now he was a Queens employee but he, you know, he was effectively hired under contract under the Queens contract with Beacon to make a kin arm so as Ian used to say those wonderful early days you know Ian would say Luke make us a kin arm and Luke would make a kin arm so a lot of cobbling together a lot of organic growth no big money outlay at the beginning you know yeah we did those sort of you know in Partech we used to call it sort of the beauty pageants right where we'd line up the different spin-off companies and say yes. okay make your pitch to the VC and the VCs would kind of scratch their head and look at us and go oh, you guys are a little different but you know I said we really grew organically and we started from sales which I know sounds really kind of obvious but for most high tech or advanced technology companies now that's unheard of absolutely unheard of. You absolutely. think about, oh, we have to invest millions and millions and millions up front in order to get to a product and then hope, you know, to go yeah. forward. But but honestly, the investment was through our wonderful national funding councils, the CIHRs and Cirques of the Worlds into Steve's research that really allowed, because his research on in how the brain works was really flourishing, relied on this tool, that that's kind of was our, our department. You know, research is still kind of at Queens and, you know, yeah. even to this day. I often use an iceberg analogy. Kinarm is the piece of the iceberg that's sticking out of the water yes. that's been selling this wonderful device that supports neuroscientists, researchers to help have insights to recover from different neurological conditions. But underneath the water are all these wonderful stories of how you arrive at there. So it's years of funding yes. from the CIHR, now uh, different funding groups that help support commercializations. It's finding a way to bring back talent that's been doing their postdoc. It's it's a bit messy. It's a bit scrappy. It's all driving towards the ultimate goal. And from the university's perspective, the dissemination of groundbreaking research that turns into products or services that can be out for public benefit. Yes. Little parts of Queen's University are permeating the, the landscape in various ways. So it's, it's, it's exciting to see. And it's difficult to see Kinarm at 15 with many international customers and figuring out, like, how the heck did that all get started? Very interesting that you haven't really taken any venture capital. This has all been no. a bootstrapped, leveraging programs offered by the university, the federal government, the provincial government, but it stayed here. It's in Kingston. You're running an operation with international sales in Kingston. It's, it's, it's really exciting. I, I would be remiss if I didn't recognize that we did get a I call it a small um, venture capital uh, investment okay. from the Partech Venture Fund. Because ah, right. at that okay. time, we had this wonderful sort of investment tool called these SISPFs or Community Small Business yeah, Investment yeah. Funds. And Partech okay. was really active in, yeah. in those investments. 
And and I must admit, you know, in hindsight, what that allowed us to do was to get our first, I would call, full-time, really robust uh, developer, software developer, Duncan McLean. Okay. You know, and if we hadn't been brought him on then, oh my goodness, we wouldn't be there where we are today. And, you know, and that again was another just a fortuitous story of a guy working for a company that was sold and he desperately wanted to stay in Kingston and looked around and said, what else is going on? Um, and so, so yeah, I, I have, if, if we hadn't had that little bump, you know, I think in hindsight, we could have probably stretched, but I think it really, it pushed us to say, yeah, we got to jump off the dock here and we've got to get a really good, you know, <laughs> yeah. robust developer who's going to get us this to a commercial product. Yeah, so there's you always hear about the three T's, right? It's technology, traction, and teams, and yes. those things get pulled together. If a, if there was a grad student listening to this episode of the podcast, what advice would you give them on figuring out how to pull the teams together? In this case, it, it was kind of a bit of an organic and trying to find complementary skill sets. Somebody you know had gone off to do a postdoc and yes. expressed interest in coming back. Yes, talk talk to us about that. Well, I think it's you know really important to pull the team that is diverse in their skills, you know, and and kind of as you alluded to in the question, it's um, Steve and Ian are very complementary to each other. They don't do the same thing. While, yeah, they both have, you know, PhDs in physiology from Queens, they, the way they look at the world is quite different. You know, Ian is incredibly pragmatic, you know, the, I would call him the hardcore physicist who really gets into the nitty gritty of things and wants to solve a problem and solve tough problems and get it documented properly. And that's what has allowed us to sell and make a very consistent product for over the 15 years, which is really important when you put all this hardware out in the field, how are you going to support it? So, so as Steve is a bit more of the dreamer, he's the, you know, the big idea guy who's, you know, not always chasing the next brightest thing, but he's, but he, he's always thinking, oh, let's do this. Let's do this. Let's do this. And so the two of them were, were kind of a good complement to, to, you know, Steve was sort of pushing the applications, whereas Ian's focus was on the sort of the hardware, the, the product per se, Kinerm. So that was a really nice complement. The thing that they were missing, of course, was the business sort of business management side. And that's where I came in. And, and really anybody at Partech could have fulfilled that. I didn't have any special knowledge. And, you know, we had to work out the mechanics of the three of us being, you know, friends, and my husband as well. Um, you know, so how you manage that amongst your team is, you know, one of those points you have to, I think, go in knowing that there are going to be challenges and you got to be able to talk to each other and very you know deal with the tough issues and don't let them fester just because you're friends so to speak um but it, it it helps it helps to have friendships in in building those teams but it also can hurt you know and that's really the bottom line in that so so being op- opportunistic um in terms of how you build your team you know i think given we were in kingston and kingston's small you, you know, we, we have this wonderful benefit of short linkages to everybody in this town, right? There's no more than three degrees of separation in this ty- entire city. It, it, you can also, you can beat yourself up and say, oh, we'll never find the talent here. Um, you know, oh, I have to go to Toronto or I have to go to Montreal. And we've seen that with a lot of projects over the years that yes. they've gone, they've left for the big cities in the hopes of finding the talent. And I honestly believe that um, there is a lot of talent uh, you know, in Kingston, a lot of it's under the rock, rocks, you know, that people are hiding away. I remember just recently, another company locally, um, Novari hired a new head of technology. And I said, how did you find this guy? And, th- and they said, well, it's funny. We discovered that he'd been, he'd been um, rec- um, essentially commuting to Markham every week for the last several years for a job because he didn't think he could find something in Kingston that was good enough for his talent. I was like, you're kidding me, right? Like, again, these sort of fortuitous finds, you just got to put your head up and, and and look around us and 
you know, sometimes people shy away from the local sort of networking events thinking, oh, it's too small town. I'm not going to learn anything. But that's not the point of them. It's the, who you're going to meet at them. And it often will link you to talent, um, you know, and, and to how to find those people together. Uh, I have a, I, I have meet with a group of CEOs every couple of months and we call ourselves the keg group, which we love the analogy, but it's Kingston executive group. And one of our uh, members yesterday said that one of his best employees was a cook. Um, that cook is now building boats. And, and so, you know, you, again, thinking about building your team, think outside the box. Think ultimately, what is the that talent that you're looking for at a functional level? Not what their degrees are, what their CV looks like, but what is that functional talent? And then start looking broadly as to how you can find that to them to, to slot them into a spot. And that sounds like wonderful advice. And one of the many special aspects of the Kinarm story is that this business has been 100% in Kingston the whole time. You've got yes. facilities here, your devices are assembled here, you're doing product iteration, customer support, and supporting international sales from Kingston. And so the university has a number of programs, the city, the Kingston Economic Development Office. If somebody's thinking about forming a startup, don't think about doing it alone because there's people that can help you network to find team Absolutely. members. Like you're saying, you've got to be a, a little bit creative and, and lean in a little bit to look for talent. But the stories you've talked about finding talent for your company or others here is one I hear often repeated. It's just, yeah. you've got to look a little bit harder and really think about hiring for fits and skill sets and skill sets can be grown to a certain extent. Absolutely. And you can end up with employees that really help you move a long way down the path. Right. And I think, you know, something I didn't touch on at all, of course, was the biggest selling feature we have here is lifestyle. And, and that's not because we're lazy. It's just because we don't like to waste our time sitting on the highway commuting, um, you know. And so I, I think from the productivity perspective, you know, you're working a 40 hour week and you're commuting time is probably a total of uh, two hours over that 40 hour week, as opposed to I talk to my cousins who live in Toronto, right? And their their penalty is like, 20 hours, you know, fit, uh, sometimes 40 hours on a week commuting for a job. So think of all that lost time that you could be doing something more enjoyable, like either with your family or other pursuits or hobbies, whatever. So it's, you know, I, I can't say enough about the how important the Kingston lifestyle is to my team because they recognize they can come to work, they can work hard, they can put in their day, they can solve really tough problems, and then they can go off at night and, you know, they can go climb rocks if they want to, right? Or they go play hockey with their kids, right? And that affordability and, and luxury of time is, is something that we all take for granted. So we turn to a little bit on your go-to-market strategy. So we've been through sort of ideation, MVP, initial product. Talk to us about how you figured out what your go-to-market or commercialization channel was and how that's evolved over the 15 years at Kinarm. Sure. So many years ago, I'm thinking like maybe 10 years ago, um, you know, we, we did a really basic market segmentation analysis where we said, okay, who are we selling to right now? basic researchers, neuroscientists, you know, doing tough market control. Let's recognize the size of that market. <laughs> and it's small. Um, it's a good market, but it's small. And, you know, and, and again, I really credit Steve for having sort of the insight to say, but let's talk about the next couple of markets beyond that. You know, I know it sounds sort of strange now in hindsight, but at the time, basic researchers were expected to do basic research. They really weren't expected to think beyond 
um, you know, how is this going to actually translate into better health, better brain injury assessment, better brain, you know, injury outcomes, you know, they weren't expected to do that. So, you know, you kind of have to put yourself back in time a little bit, but it was new to think about basic researchers wanting or needing to translate their research into the next phase, you know, in, in terms of moving tech you know, information or knowledge up the food chain, so to speak, That's you know, right. from basic knowledge into direct applications in, in human health. So we set out these, you know, sort of real basic mark, crude market segments. And I think one of the things that we recognize the next market, obviously, was clinical research. And then the final final penultimate market was the clinic and you know here we're comparing ourselves to MRIs and ultrasounds and you know that high-end diagnostic equipment and we realized when we were telling our story about you know how we saw our market and market development that a lot of the listeners would immediately seize on that clinical market and go oh that's what you want that's where the big money is that's where the big numbers are you know just jump over there focus on a single application um, and the flavor of the day and month, many ways we were being pushed towards was sport concussion assessment. And just focus on that and then, you know, get a hop over to the clinical market. And we really resisted um, because one of the things we recognized, as Steve as a scientist recognized that that particular application was really tough from a science perspective, actually to prove there was yep. a brain injury and how to measure it. But we also recognized that through this market segmentation, which is again, really super crude analysis, that there was a lot of users in the so-called clinical research space. Clinical researchers have been our tool or ticket to effectively developing or validating the applications of the KinArm. KinArm has been able to play in research programs across a whole uh, wide array of different uh, stroke, different brain injury indications, I'd call it. So stroke is our biggest. That's where we came from. And there's been dozens of publications already in that particular area. Why stroke? Because it's a really heterogeneous disease. It's very difficult to differentiate one person's impairments from another person's impairments. We do that really well. We And, and we have provided um, to large multinational uh, companies, and I'm thinking specifically of a clinical trial that we were involved in, really important information to show whether a clinical uh, candidate for a stroke drug works or doesn't work, right? And, and that that in itself is a huge impact when you say, wow, we can actually enable clinical trials to develop new drugs and to prove whether they work or don't work. So stroke has been an important sort of leading indication. Um, more recently, we're looking at traumatic brain injury, mild traumatic brain injury, sport concussion. There's you know, thousands of, of literally thousands, I think they're up to almost 2,000 subjects out at the Calgary Winsport, um, Canadian Sport Institute facility who mm. received their baseline testing for, you know, their kind of their off season, um, you know, brain fitness, brain test, brain functional test. And then when they have a concussion, they can come back and they're trying to help determine whether they, where, when and where they should return to, to play in that particular sport. Um, the other interesting thing that we have, you know, aside from all the neurological indications, is the non-neuro indications. Um, Gord Boyd here at, at Queen's University in Kingston Health Sciences has done some really cool work with what we would consider not brain injuries. For example, um, the dialysis patients. He started a little study, you know, with Steve's support and started collecting all the, the essentially brain functional information or kinerm assessment for these dialysis patients before they're dialyzed and then afterwards. And of course, what he was finding was that there are significant impacts to brain function prior to dialysis. And that's because, you know, the, essentially the urea that's caused, um, you know, because of the kidney disease poisons the brain. It really impairs brain function.
So wonderful to see Queen's research, her research from many years ago, probably iterated many times, having a strong benefit locally. Yes. You mentioned Calgary, so there's national. Uh, talk about international impact. I understand what is it in my notes here. 100 labs around the world have kinarm installations. We're so close to the 100 mark. Uh, we almost actually just did almost 100. We did an installation this week in Magdor. It takes us, I think, about three away from our 100 point. We, you know, it's amazing to me, um, honestly, to see how these different clusters grow. You know, Calgary for us is a huge cluster now. I think we're about to ship number seven kinarm to Calgary as a city, which is incredible. Um, Japan has been incredible. And again, this is, comes from a perspective that international science knows no boundaries. You know, all good, uh, you know, scientists will meet at their meetings and they'll share their approaches and they'll share their researchers, research and research approaches. And that's why Kinarm has been able to spread sort of organically around the world. So Japan, we have, uh, I think, again, about seven Kinarms there. Uh, Belgium is a real hot spot for us. There's already several Kinarms in, in Belgium and about to be a couple more. Germany is becoming a really interesting spot where we we're doing an installation this week. We've got thinks again it's also seven sounds like there's a lot of sevens going on but uh, you know and 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 again it, it starts with cu the curiosity driven research of those individual researchers um dr bernard sem who is at the university of leipzig and um, at max Planck institute he's a neurologist and when he started using the kin arm he was interested in a a number of different things and obviously in terms of how you know what the impairments were and the work that had already been done both queens that went to calgary then then come around internationally but he was also thinking about spasticity and how he could also use the kin arm you know to measure um spasticity so we said gee funny we've actually got a, a research collaboration with toronto rehab where we're trying to develop another measure for spasticity and he was like, oh amazing i need this okay so as soon as you do this i'll port it over to germany i want that test too because right now measuring spasticity is not done very effectively and not very objectively he has then shared that knowledge and again that interest there in stroke specifically with other researchers more most recently with a group in in russia in moscow um and we're now potentially looking at a future for kin arms in moscow which is kind of cool so it's again this wonderful international collaborations that take place between scientists that you know, when they need one, they goes another one. We I didn't mention that we've got uh, a couple in Australia. Again, those came out of international collaborations that are happening. We've got a really exciting unit now at University College London. Um, we're a very senior stroke researcher, very well-respected stroke researcher, Dr. Nick Ward is, and I'm very excited about where he's going to take the use of the kinarm. Yeah. We've got the Cleveland Clinic coming on. They're going to be receiving their system after, after uh, Christmas. The, you know, their interests are multidisciplinary as well. Stroke, Parkinson's, you know, uh, CP, all movement disorders, you know, so there's, you know, it's really exciting to see how these clusters develop because they will then spin off new research, new applications, which will then hopefully lead on to more adoption into the marketplace. And it's an amazing story to hear you talk about the local, national, and many international world-class researchers using Absolutely. this. But to say that it's research that came from Queens, was turned into a company that can do all this from Kingston, Ontario. Like, what a, what a cool story. Yeah, right? yeah, it's, yeah. It's a, we, should, we should be trying to celebrate more of the success of the kin arms, so it, but it's just amazing the reach you can have from Kingston, Ontario. It's awesome. Well, and I know a lot of people will drive by our little shop on Railway Street and go and wonder what's inside and, and recently entertained the CEO of, of the Kingston Chamber after we'd won that award and she came by for a visit and I said, oh, let me give you a tour while you're here. And her eyes literally were wide open the entire tour. She's like, 
you do this here? You're kidding me. Really? You have a machine shop back here? Oh, and you're shipping from here? Oh, and you make this here too? It's, and, and, you know, we've put everything under a single hood. And, and what actually is a great footprint for, for us has been wonderful to be downtown because we're close to Queens and, and whatnot. So, yeah, it, it, you can do a lot under house. And boy, there's a lot of pieces to keep in check. Suppliers, customers, um, you know, management of your business. But, you know, you, you can do it anywhere. Right? You can, but it, it, doing it here is just is a pleasure. Can we t- we've touched on it a little bit throughout our conversation, but some of the support systems that are available for companies that want to use startups, can we walk walk through the different, uh, and, and this is also sort of benefits of starting a startup. So some of the groups that if you're starting a startup, you should think about getting to know, like the Ontario sure. Centers of Excellence. You've used them in some way, shape, or form. We we did in the early days, and I, I must profess I'm not as uh, as knowledgeable about the programs available today as I was through ten years ago. But and a lot's changed on the landscape. But I think generally speaking, as you say, our province has an interest in creating jobs, um, and there's nothing that any government, no matter what their political stripes are, likes more than to see talented, smart people. You know trained at Ontario University or college, starting a business that then can stay and grow in in Ontario. So that it all comes back to the province. I want to create jobs for Ontarians. Um, OCE, as you say, has been kind of that umbrella for many years. And they, as I mentioned previously, they helped us with a first job uh, for us hiring uh, Steve Falls, our our engineering uh, design engineer. Um, We also received some commercialization money that helped us, again, just to kind of fund operations to especially from the software development side to, to get forwards move forward so we kind of moved up their programs in terms of the levels that they had set for the early uh, um, amounts um, one of the downsides about having a investment from the Partech Venture Fund is, um, and, and really from any fund, you think, is that you have to have a board and, and structuring a board that's, um, you know, that's useful to you. And you think, oh, this is going to be a pain, board management. But they really do, you, you know, they are become your closest advisors. And that board that we had many years ago, you know, yes, there was a lot of debate around the table, you know, and then sometimes a lot of friction. But they were always meant well. And, and these were people who were very senior within the Queen's community who helped, um, who helped us and gave us their honest opinion, you know. And people like Bill Leggett, you know, the former principal of Queen's. People like Dr. Jeff Flynn, you know, former uh, scientist at Queen's. You know, he, they gave us fantastic opinions. Um, George Hood, who was then had, I think it was not in advancement at the time. He'd been previously the VP advancement at Queens. You know, he was out, used to going out and, and raising money. And so he was able to give us that real business savviness. You know, build your team. And I know that sounds very cliche, but build that, you know, group of advisors. And they weren't paid anything for that, right? They did this out of the kindness of their hearts to, you know, let me slog them through financial packages and reviews and whatnot. But we met every quarter and that, 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 those, those people really are mentors. Board members are really our mentors. And so within the community, there's lots of different groups who are happy to provide that sort of mentorship, be it through Launch Lab, through, be it through what you're doing at Queen's. Um, you know, through the Office of, of, um, of partnership, Industry Partnerships, you know, look for those mentors. And 
and and you know sometimes it's as easy as just going into LinkedIn and finding people who've got similar you know <laughs> within your sort of extended network and just reach out to them and say hey do you, would you spend some time with me and help me because I do that all the time I get cold cold calls you know through LinkedIn saying hey I've got this you know interesting project I'm you know I'm in Kingston would you mind if I you know we sat down for coffee and you meet the most interesting people that way and and so it's reach out I think it, it you might have your head down trying to worry about getting out a first product but you've got to spend that time reaching out and seeing what else is in the community to help you wonderful advice and I would say a common thread of every successful company that I know of that started as a startup had that group of advisors that have been there done that they can be there as a source of encouragement they can help you think outside the box you know when you miss the forest for the trees and th- those kind of things so yes. that's that's good advice and, and i think if you're mindful about reaching out to people that have experience there's always a desire to help and give back at least if it's a half hour phone call that can absolutely point you in the right direction it could save 6 months of spinning your wheels looking for yeah. Market research, whatever, maybe. Right? Absolutely. You know, and I'm not a Queens grad, you know, and even though I, I kind of worked at Queens for a long time, yep. you know, one of the things that always just blew me away was the the culture of Queens is one of giving and, and giving back. And that to me was something that didn't, I didn't ever feel at my institutions, my alma maters, which, uh, you know, um, you know, hey, Good on you, Warlu and Concordia both have great, great, uh, you know, respect in the field. But I never felt that sense of wanting to give and give back. And um, and Queens deserves kudos for that. And, and as you say, the, the help is there. You just gotta know to ask for it. One of the things we'd like to accomplish with this podcast is to provide a thumbnail sketch of what return on innovation would look like for a group like Kinarm. And so mm. if we, we we end our interview with talking about all the great things that don't hit your P&L as part of a startup, right? Mm-hmm. So Queen's University does this research, Steve Scott, Stephen Scott's lab, mm-hmm. um, that gets turned into a company. Well, then you start hiring Queen's employees. You've sponsored some research at Queen's, mm-hmm. leverage Absolutely. granting opportunities. Uh, and then there's the benefits of the product itself where you've got the technical expertise to give world-class neuroscientists and other areas a tool that can help them address whatever neurological issue or related issue they're developing. As much as it's it's about the profit lot, because businesses mm-hmm. are in place to make money. Yes. But most entrepreneurs I've met, and you're n- no exception, is you want to have an impact and you want to do it here in Kingston. So uh, thanks so much for taking the time to chat. And, and I think Kingston is benefited wonderfully from you and Stephen deciding to stay in this area to uh, with nose to the grindstone and moving these projects forward it's just wonderful story so I hope many people will be able to hear more about it oh you're most welcome Jim happy to spend the time and with that we'll conclude this episode thank you very much for listening if you enjoyed this episode please share like and subscribe to this podcast if you're interested in learning more about research innovation and entrepreneurship please see the show notes for a full list of programs and services available here at Queen's University.